This podcast is sponsored by Kulabula, creators of websites, animation, and digital art. To get a 10% discount, go to kulabula.com and put in the discount code SPEAKING. Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. We're also on BitChute and YouTube, a speaking podcast. We also have the Awakening Podcast, Meditation Podcast, Learn Polish Podcast, and the new crypto podcast and all can be found on roycon.com. And you would think that my guest would be shocked with all my podcasts because most people go, oh, not this guy. Because <laughs> Graham has done over a thousand podcasts himself. Please welcome to the show, Graham Brown. Hey, Roy. Great to be here, fellow podcaster. Sounds like you might be catching up on me there. Well, I, I don't know about that. I, I'm not sure how many you've got. I think, is it 1,500 plus you have at 1,500, but you win in variety. Meditation, Polish... <laughs> speaking take your pick <laughs> exactly I, I i think i 430 or something like that like that i have at the moment total. oh it's very good yeah, yeah so i don't know but they're all they're all doing well they're all in kind of except for the new one obviously but they're on the top one percent and three in the top half percent mm. so you know happy enough with that like so it's quality might, not quantity, exactly like some people exactly so you might <laughs> <laughs> no you might let the audience know who's graham well i i guess i'm a storyteller roy at heart i've just worked out somehow there's a way of getting paid for telling stories you know when you're a kid you get scolded by your mom don't tell stories well i think as you get older you realize how important storytelling is whether it's in business you know if you're influencing people if you're making change if you want people to do anything you really have to use a story to package information the problem is a lot of people are good at data and information but not so good at the storytelling part. So, you know, I found my niche in telling stories and helping other people tell stories, whether that's through creating podcasts. So I work a lot with brands, helping them tell their stories or helping people get on podcasts, which obviously now given, you know, the speaking circuit has changed in the last 24 months, fundamentally, that people now are looking at podcasts as a way to get out into the public speaking sphere so that's a lot of what i do in helping them refine and practice their content excellent and i suppose you know a lot of people after the third episode they throw in the towel everybody's motivated at the start <laughs> to want to get going and yeah it's a shame the pod fade the pod fade. exactly exactly yeah it was easy to get started wasn't it with the podcast the hard part is um, the enthusiasm and keeping it going a lot of it has to do with the fact that they don't have a, a real business case for doing a podcast, just a bit of fun, which is fine. You've got the intrinsic motivation of doing a podcast because it's good fun. You meet people, you get to have a chat. And that's all good if that's your motivation. But I think the harder part is, is the constant creative overhead of having to think about what am I going to talk about next, which is a challenge, right? And if, if you're running a business, a lot of your creative energy goes into the business. And then if you're thinking about what am I going to do for episode four, that starts to get hard because you really need to not be thinking about that. That's why, you know, with the guesting part, you get on other people's podcasts and speak there. Really, the content is set up for you. So that way it takes a bit of the creative overhead out of it or that sort of challenge that people have in thinking about what do I do next? Exactly. And I, I know that you've been on over a hundred other podcasts and like, how do you find that? Because, I mean, I've set up a system, obviously, people do a checklist and a whole lot. And I, you know, I mean, obviously, screen guests, make sure that I'm getting quality. 
but I know I've been on other shows as well. And mm. sometimes prior to being on, they're asking me, okay, so what, 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 tell me about yourself kind of thing. So have you experienced that or what's your kind of? Oh yeah, various degrees. I think the good thing, Roy, is let's go back three years to where we are now in the, as a comparison, that the level of professionalism in podcasts has definitely improved. Everybody was kind of starting out recording off iPhones or recording off laptop mics. And I think now people have got up the learning curve technically. And so the other part then is the content. What people started off as a passion project, they suddenly realized it's hard to build an audience. It's hard to rely on guests to share your content, to build an audience. That doesn't work anymore. That model of get a guest, get the guest to share it with their fans, their fans come to your podcast. That doesn't work as a way of building an audience anymore. So now people have to think about how do I make this content really engaging? So a big part of that Roy is onboarding, getting people to sync with your messaging. You know, if you talk about these core topics, how do you make sure that your guests are going to reinforce and build on that? Because the key now is like, how do you, you know, if somebody listens to this podcast, what's going to make them listen to the next podcast? You know, if they're my fans, unlikely they're going to follow through. So you have to kind of keep that narrative going. And th this is a big challenge. I think that whereas now people have learned the technical aspects of podcasting, the next level is the content. How do you make this sticky? How do you get people coming back? How do you build an audience? And obviously, obviously, if you're in the top 1%, as you claim, Roy, then well, I believe to listen, you've cracked to it. to listen notes, whether that's true or not. Like, well, it's true. <laughs> yeah, I checked you out. It's good. It's all good with Roy. So he's obviously knowing his stuff. And that's the point, isn't it? That, you know, what differentiates you and the other guys is the fact you've got this kind of narrative going through your series and that keeps people interested. No, I, I like the kind of speaking podcast to, you know, just help people. And what's strange is because, I mean, I've done over 100 and there's 110 up, but there's probably 130 plus that have been recorded. Every single person brings something different to the table. And mm. you would think, you would never think that so much changes or everyone has their own kind of structure for everything, workshops, keynotes, whatever. And it's brilliant because you'll take on board. Oh, I like this style, not that style. And, you know, you're always benefiting from it. And that's what I enjoy about it. But, well, one thing I liked about your podcast when I did my research on it is that you are speaking to a specific audience, which is missing in a lot of podcasts. Let's think about it. If you had a radio show, you would, or if you listen to a radio, we're over an age where we remember radio being a thing in people's lives, right? That you heard the radio DJ speak to you. He would always say you. He would never say the audience or you guys. He would always say you. And that's one thing radio did really well because that's sort of a hundred years of radio history that they would always engage people. They, they knew exactly who their audience was. They knew what their pain points were. They knew how old they were, what their names were. You know, I even knew radio DJs that would cut out pictures and stick it on the microphone. So they would speak to that person as if that person was actually there in the room. And that engagement is really important. And you think about it, like when you do this podcast, you're speaking to that person, you're talking to their problems. Like, okay, I want to build my public speaking persona or my business or my, I want to get out there and get over my fears of stage fright. 
or you know you can see some of the episodes you've talked about dealing with those kind of barriers people have to speaking right so you're speaking to a specific avatar but if you look at a lot of podcasts Roy, and i'm sure you've seen this and you've been on them and i've been on them but a lot of people don't know who their avatar is and that's what's the missing part on that stage too isn't it like it's okay to do a podcast you know producing a podcast is easy getting easier but promoting it is getting harder because people don't know who they're talking to. And I look at yours and you can see that consistency in the narrative is that this is for a specific person solving a specific problem. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's always great to have a niche. It's, it's like with all of mine, obviously meditation, you go down that route and you can find the groups that people would be kind of circulating around that and promote them groups. But like with mm. the awakening one, that's kind of more general. And I was afraid of that. I was like, because it does, it's relevant to everybody, but it seems to have worked because what's happened is on Facebook and you'll find groups that are connected with the topics, you know, mm. the current mm. events and stuff like that. So you can just go into them. But as far as putting, putting it just out there, that doesn't work. You need to. No, anymore. no, no. And it's like the old days when people used to publish a book, isn't it? Like you publish a book and people bought it, but now it's like, yeah, you've got a lot of competition now on Amazon. And I've even heard of people, they were even saying, like, when they get, they find a publisher, it's like, it's still up to you. <laughs> they're they're yeah. not promoting it. It's like, yeah, yeah, we'll take 95% of the money. But uh, yeah, you get, if, yeah, yeah, if you want to get it out there, yeah, you need to do the marketing. Yeah, you've so. got to hustle. And it's the same with podcasts, right? That the days of producing a podcast and therefore getting an audience because there were too many listeners are gone. I think there's now 3.7 million podcasts in the world. That's a lot. And, you know, it's, it's very much one of those sort of exponential curves. The top 5% probably get 80% of the audience and everybody else is getting these small slithers of what's left over. So it's a real challenge. And I think, you know, for those people out there that, that, in your audience who are interested in speaking and starting a podcast, the starting point always has to be, who am I talking to? Define that person really down to the niche. So, you know, when I do my podcast, it's always about speaking to Nicole. So Nicole is, you know, a 30 or 40 something comms head in a brand, for example. So when I do my podcasting for brands podcast, that's always about speaking to brand communications leaders. I know her challenges. I know how she speaks. I know the language she uses. So I'd speak to her. You know, I wouldn't use certain terms and concepts because she would think in a certain way. So I think that's really important, getting into that kind of mindset. And, let, you know, all the other stuff, like providing it in social media, that's all secondary to understanding that audience because you can start with 100 people. If you can have a hundred people in the audience who really love what you do, that's a really good starting point. Exactly. And I, I've seen people that, you know, they get the kind of, at the start, you know, you start off and you get 30, 40 and you're like, oh, you know, you, but you just keep going and you, like, if you keep tracking it, keep tracking it weekly mm. and you go, okay, it's increasing, it's increasing. And I, like, I do a weekly show with one guy on the, the Awakening podcast. And we basically said, if one person listened and made a change, would we mm. still do it? And we said we would. So it wasn't about getting 10,000 or whatever. It's about, you know, and sometimes some of the episodes, because we get shared on a few channels, it would hit 10,000 mm. plus even maybe 50,000. It's hard to track it when it starts going in all directions, but you don't, it's not about that. It's about 
you know, and you get the feedback. I mean, obviously you've got a lot, lot of feedback just from the listeners, you know, how mm. you've, you've made an impact on their life. And that's, you know, that's a nice feeling as well to, to have. I feel the nearest analogy is like running a restaurant. You can have the kind of restaurant that has the sea view and you've been to these places, these places on the tourist trail with the sea view, they get the coach loads of tourists. They all come in. The food is crap. They serve the frozen paella, all that kind of thing. And then, they disappear, they overcharge them, shortchange them, crap service, never come back. They don't care because another coach loads coming tomorrow. So that's one type of restaurant. But the restaurants that make money are the ones that, you know, maybe they're a little bit out of town, off the parking lot. You know, they're the ones that the coach drivers will go to when they drop off all the tourists, right? But they're the ones that can get people coming in and fill a restaurant Wednesday afternoon. Tuesday night, everybody can fill a restaurant Friday, Saturday night, no problem. But a restaurant is only profitable on the other five days of the week, you know, when you can get that person who comes on Friday night, bringing back their wife on Tuesday and the people from the office on Wednesday. Girlfriend on Thursday. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> girlfriend one on Thursday. So as long as the waiter knows who they are, gives them that knowing look. So that's, that's how you build, isn't it? It's that organic. And it's the same with like a podcast growing an audience. You can start with 30, but if you can get 2%, 5% repeat week on week, that compounding really, really pays off. You know, what we see in most podcasts is going back to that guest sharing model, which people have relied on. What happens is, you know, I bring in a hundred people to your podcast. It's like the drive by they come in on the coach load they consume your podcast and they're gone. They, they don't care about your other guests. They don't care about what they have to say. They only care about me. And it's the same with the next person. They only care about them and they'll listen to it, whatever they talk about. But those people never become re repeat customers. The hard work is talking to your customers, your listeners and keeping them coming back, interacting with them. You talked about Facebook, for example, you see with good podcasts, I see some of the best podcasts, they have communities built around them, whether it's Facebook or Reddit or Telegram, for example, they're actively engaging and talking to their communities, just like Roy in the old days with radio, you know, when they had the phone ins and the radio DJ would be at the local hospital, you know, doing a broadcast from the ward. That's what radio did really well. And we can learn a lot from radio in terms of building our audiences. Like you mentioned as well, that you know when you're on different shows, like they don't kind of promote, you know. But I don't know what's your experience, but I've had plenty. I'll share with all my media and everything. And like sometimes they'd have a huge following. They're the ones that never do it. It's the people that say nothing. They do share it, and you know, yeah. like you tag them, and then they'll like it, and then they'll post it and repost. And it's some, it's the people that say nothing. Like sometimes they'll do wonders, and like I remember for the speaking. It was a 16 year old I got on who was a beatboxer and he mm. had way more numbers than anybody else. And I've had some serious people on. And but he sounds interesting already, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, because he just and he started because he, he was obviously delighted. It was his first part, but he was, you know, a great yeah. guest because, I mean, he had started, you know, speaking because normally you can't join Toastmasters till you're 18. So he pretend he got his dad to join and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> But you know, the way sometimes people think, I mean, I've had on The Awakening, I've had the likes of David Icke, Dolores, I've had loads at the top, and I know you've the same, you've interviewed a lot of the top people. Sometimes they're not the ones that get the... No, 
and people Absolutely, think yeah. you land the golden joint and you're done. No. It's no, no, no. They're they're the least likely, but they do have a role. They have a role in getting the other guests and somehow validating your podcast. But those celebrity guests do very little for your numbers. I'm surprised. You know, people like you talk about David Icke, for example. I've had people like Tony Fernandez on mine, and you know, very little. He, I don't think he shared it. I think Air Asia shared it, but he didn't share anything, and so he didn't drive a lot of traffic. And that happens, right? I feel people will get a celebrity guest and bang, all your audience problems are solved. No, nope, not at all. It's those 16-year-olds. Again, it's the restaurant analogy. It's people coming back and just good quality food, good quality content, bringing people back. Absolutely, absolutely. So you've done radio as well, I believe, yes? Student radio. <laughs> yeah, Still radio. never Still been radio. paid for radio, if that's what you're saying. I've been on radio, I've done podcasts, been on student radio, but I've never ever got a job at a radio station. So there you go. Well, no, it's even just, just being on the radio. I mean, yeah, obviously it'd be nice if you had got paid, but like, what have you learned? What kind of, because some of the speakers would like to get on radio or even sometimes mm -hmm. they're being interviewed. What kind of tips and tricks could you share with the people for that? Well, I worked a lot. I work a lot with radio people. So a lot of people who are ex BBC, for example, are now in the podcasting space, a lot of ex DJs, um, because there's also a lot of commercial radio people who are a different sort of group of people. So the BBC type are very much pure content people, whereas the commercial people are more thinking about the audience and how do we make this work, for example, and more sort of commercially minded, obviously. Now, what it comes down to, I feel in the success of radio is you've got to really practice your material if you want to be a success on any stage, whether that's radio, TV, or public speaking. And radio, particularly because the timing is so limited, you know, you've got the bookends of a, a show. It's not going to overrun and it's not going to underrun. And there's bits where they have to drop in the advertising. So they need to have tight content and you can see when you're talking to a host and they're starting to wander because you're not on point so the key here i think it's like stand-up comedy i don't roy do you do any stand-up or anything like have you i've done tried that? i've actually done open mic yeah and i mean a lot of my speeches i got into the final of uh toastmasters for five countries with a comedy speech so i i enjoy it actually is that stand-up style? Was it Adelaide? Was, do you practice? I, I, your... I've done the stand-up in an open mic, but with the competition, it's like a seven-minute speech, but with humor. Wow. Yeah. That scares the hell out of me, stand-up. I've got a lot of respect for stand-up comedians, and I think it's like public speaking in the sense that nobody was born funny, that every comedian has on the face of what you see as somebody who's very funny and spontaneous, Behind that, thousands of hours of refinement, thousands of hours of unfunny sketches, thousands of hours of stuff that bombed that you never see because it doesn't make the public sphere. What they've done is they've gone out, and I was listening to the story of um, Kevin Hart, the, the little guy, comedian, who is the world's most highly paid comedian. And most of his money, uh, he does the Netflix stuff and so on, but most of his money comes from stage performances, obviously until everything changed in the last two years. He does big arenas, you know, 50,000, 100,000 people. And he was saying the way he practices his 
material and this is great advice for anybody thinking of going on radio is that what he does is he does it in a two-year time span so year one what he does Roy is he goes out and he can do 50,000 100,000 easily in tons of audiences but he goes out to the bars and the dive clubs with five people and 10 people they're clearing up you know and they're drunk and like the hecklers there and people don't really care and he does those deliberately and he'll do that for a year he'll go out and he'll practice all his material constantly in these dive clubs and you know he can see right in front of him that guy raw responding to him was that funny did that woman laugh did that guy heckle what did they do when I told them that sketch or let's do a different version of the sketch tonight in front of those 10 people. He'll do that every night for a year. Can you imagine the kind of practice they're getting in gigging? And then what he'll do after a year was he'll then get all that feedback and roll it up into his material. And then he'll take that out into public. And this is important because great public speakers look effortless, but what they've done that is hidden is the work they've practiced and they practice and they practice they haven't necessarily done it in front of a mirror which is important because i think people think that you just kind of print it out and you read and you read and you read you don't you've got to face the moment of truth and this is key in public speaking the moment of truth means rejection you've got to face and you will know this from stand up that that sharpens your instinct to get funny when you tell a joke and it's just silent <laughs> That's like when the ground opens up and you want to just jump in the hole, right? There's nothing more powerful as a motivator to make you more funny than to overcome that fear of rejection. And it's the same with any kind of content. It's just constant refinement. So I would say to anybody, you know, if you're thinking of going on radio, speaking on stage, is that one of the things really works is to focus on scenes. Think of, for example, you know, I just told you the Kevin Hart scene. That's something that I haven't told just tonight spontaneously. I've told that before, you know, in, over a drink, over a coffee. I've written it. I've re related that to people in different formats. It's something I've practiced. So practice these bricks, these scenes in your content and constantly refine them. So, you know, maybe I practiced Kevin Hart for the first time tonight and it bombed. You were like, oh, I don't really get that. The audience kind of didn't resonate with it but i can read from the feedback whether or not that works and then kind of refine it and try a different version of it and so on so practice these scenes practice writing them practice them on podcasts and then you know when you get good take them to the bigger stages Absolutely. like i do a lot of live shows i do kind of at least one weekly but i tell people because some people they panic on that i i started doing a load of uh interviews in pakistan and now i've two percent of my audience is from pakistan because wow. i've been on a load of shows and they know they're all live they use Streamyard. there's a guy uh rehan alawala he's set up this institute where he's getting all these different people to try to do live interviews with people around the world and you just get so comfortable with it and plus you know when you're talking mm. like the story as you say when you know Hey, that went well or you see how the person is reacting to it or mm. even the comments later then you know that the next interview yeah this one works this is better and you're just kind of sharpening your saw you know and that, like i love the story with which you know kevin hart because i mean yeah i've seen that as well i've I've read that and it's like you know it's 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 the way to do it because people don't do it you know it's uh it's very agile isn't it that's the key people think you're born funny 
it's a lot of refinement and material. You know, that's the, it, you know, everybody talks about agile these days. That's really it. It's that constant refinement, evolution of your content, practicing thousands of hours. Absolutely. And I, I know myself, there's times that like, I could say something, some people would get it and I'd kind of run it by someone and it would just, it, it wouldn't die, but sometimes like you might have one or two would laugh and it'd be something that I didn't expect to be funny. Mm. Loads of people get, and it's it, the only way you can do that is by practicing and just constantly being out there. And that's what makes you mentioned it. in one of your podcasts, awareness, for example, and there is that isn't there in public speaking, which comes with practice. There's a great book. It's quite old now by, I suppose he's a psychologist, somebody called Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi. He wrote a book called flow, which was this psychological state, peak performance state. I know you're a Tony Robbins fan, peak performance state that you can achieve when you are doing something which you've practiced many, many times. So it could be, for example, if you're a tennis player and the way you hit the ball, you're in that zone. If you're like Djokovic and you're just kind of hitting that ball in a certain way, he's probably not consciously thinking of anything. That's probably the, you know, very sort of beautiful way of depicting it. But at the very basic level, it could be like driving a car. You know, the first time you drove a car, it's like, oh my God, I'm going to die. You, know, like, you don't know how I'm going to do all these things going on. And then like a few years later, you're kind of driving, you're eating a sandwich and you're trying to change the, <laughs> the radio and so on. You're, and you've driven 15 minutes and thought, oh my God, I didn't even consciously think about that. I drove through some light screen, obviously. And turn the corner and it was all kind of in this pre-programmed state and that's flow and when we do something which we practice thousands of times we can achieve flow because we're almost consciously in autopilot and then we have this meta awareness which i'm aware of in public speaking and being on stage for example where you yeah you're a little bit nervous because you're always going to have that but like you say, Roy, you're reading that person's reaction to that thing that you said, and oh, you know, one or two people maybe laughed at it. And in that sort of fight or fright mode, which you would have been in the beginning, you wouldn't take that data in. You were just kind of, oh, thank God I got to the end and didn't die. But when you're in that zone, when you're in flow, you read that and then you like clock it. And then you're talking to that person. And you're trying to create a connection with that person in the audience as well. So it really, that's thousands of hours again, getting to that state, but that's really it. And I, I found that after thousands of hours of podcasting, being in the moment, and that's a very meditative thing. I'm sure somebody like you would appreciate is actually, you know, now it's just about connecting, but I'm enjoying talking to Roy. Oh yeah. We've got an audience here. <laughs> I'm not even thinking about that now. I'm no, just exactly, thinking about yeah, 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 Exactly. You're dead right. We go into flow and we just, we forget, but, you know, we obviously we, we, we're talking about the things that they'll benefit from. They know what they're mm. coming from and we're talking about the thing, but it, loads of times that happens that you just, you're just engaging. And like, as I said to somebody, like, even if I'm listening to a podcast, I say, I'm a fly on the wall listening in on a conversation. Yeah. And, you know, That's the best, right? And even like, you know, whether you're a guest or a host, not, being afraid to indulge if something's interesting going there being stay in that moment rather than say Roy I've got 20 questions here like just keep them short and I want you to answer the next one like I'm interested for example like you've done stand-up like 
the thought processes that compel somebody to stand on stage and be funny, the pressure to be funny. I've done thousands of hours of public speaking. I've never stood up and done a comedy sketch. So I'm just curious at what takes you from being a public speaker to a stand-up comedian. There's something which, you know, there's like a glass ceiling, which I haven't broken through, which you have, which you've kind of got comfortable with. I'm just curious what on earth makes somebody want to do that. I suppose it's kind of making people, you know, you're bringing joy, you know, just to make people laugh and especially a real belly laugh, you know, that uncontrollable laugh and just to be able to do that to somebody, you know, it's a, it's a great experience. And what I've also done is with as the awakening one, because I'm exposing fraud and corruption in some of the speeches that I was doing in the Toastmasters, I was doing information, but with humor, because I, mm. I knew that if I'm mm. giving a speech on that, people are getting down. But if you do it with a bit of humor, they'll remember it more. And, you know, they, they went down well. And they were, I was just testing. I said, this could bomb. This could be terrible. You know, I didn't know how yeah. people would react but they really enjoyed it and you know they actually got the message they were like did that really happen you know which was the point and i you know i mean if you look at uh, another fantastic comedian jp you know it's, mm. like that's what he's doing you know he's getting a message out but using humor and you know it's a i think it's a good way of uh, of getting the message especially in these crazy times huh? there's a lot of it has to be that you have to have because i imagine when you deliver a joke got to be extremely confident in that joke that it's going to work if you're kind of like half oh i'm not sure about this like chatting up a girl isn't it you, you gotta like if you're not confident you're gonna get eaten alive like you're gonna get spat out it's the same with delivering a joke i suppose like maybe that was my problem of like doing stand-up comedy is that i just never had that complete belief that i could hold it and say like you say if you deliver something that's tricky content difficult subject somebody who stands up and talks about this you've got to be 100 behind it otherwise people are going to sense that they smell the fear won't they and then it's just once you start getting nervous and your voice starts cracking on the jokes i'm sure you've lost it from that stage exactly exactly and just and kind of i know that you speak japanese and spanish as well as obviously english have you done podcasts on that or spoken like, or is it just something kind of for social that with the different languages? Mm. Yeah, mainly social. I did have an intention at one point that I could do my own podcast in Japanese, but I feel that doing it in another language and all credit to people that do do it in other languages, it's an amazing achievement, is you've got to have that kind of nuance understanding, which, you know, even in your own language is really hard you've got to have those kind of like that control of language which is it's almost like writing isn't it like a lot of people can write but how many people can write you know in the same way drawing if you ask anybody to draw i'm sure they say they can draw something a house but how many people are really good at it you know very small percentage of people like even drawing something simple like a car you know i'm, I'm nearly 50 years old you asked me to draw a car it's like the hardest thing in the world. I still draw like a five-year-old would draw a car with like this kind of like this sort of arches of the wheels, right? Bubble car. And I feel that's the same, you know, in this situation as well, right? It's pretty hard like to do it in English alone. To do it in another language, 
I don't know if you could have that kind of control of the nuances. You'd have to be bilingual, I'm sure, to have that kind of level of understanding. You could probably do it in a very informational way, in the same way you could read or you could portray information. But to have that kind of subtleties, even comedy or connection or that ability to just be really confident in your own language, I don't know how people do it in another language. I haven't seen many people actually do do that. So that's interesting. Like I've seen some people as well, they ask that are fluent in say Spanish and English, and mm. they want to then do the podcast in both languages as in, you know, one week English, one week Spanish. Uh, and I, I, I kind of, I recommend that they set two separate ones because their audience isn't going to be the same and they'll only confuse them. Right? I mean, you've got a lot more experience and a lot more podcasts. What's your thoughts on that? I've seen it on the, the corporate side. So a, a bank, for example, that I work with has both German and English speaking clients and they would mix it up and you could see the audience numbers like being hit by it. It's not that they can skip a podcast. It's just that audiences, if they see something that's not relevant to them, they'll turn off. They won't skip something. So the key here is, you know, separating off, as you say, you know, I mean, yeah, the, the fairest they can unsubscribe. I mean, it's bad enough. They yeah, won't exactly. listen to that episode. So that's why I think we look at the data. I think, you know, people subscribe to on average six podcasts. There's 3.7 million. <laughs> So there's a lot of competition for those six spaces in people's attention. Only five right? of mine are money. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, even that's tough competition, right? You think about that. Six, that's it. So with your company, do you, do you have employees or is it, uh, what's... Yeah, we, we, you know, we've got a team here in Singapore and uh, some based around Asia. We work on projects, so whether that be people who are editors or people who help us on the outreach projects when we are doing our podcast outreach. So, you know, we keep it lean, um, but you know, our main base here is in Singapore. Okay. And like with the communication, I mean, do you, I mean, obviously, cause I want to discuss that anyway, the fact that you kind of packed up everything and you've lived in, right. I don't know, five, six, the Canary Islands and Spain, New Zealand and everything. First of all, like what made you do that? What was the, what was the reasoning behind that? <laughs> uh, it's a long story. How long have we got? Well, basically, um, the nub of it is in 2012, I sold a business, a telecoms business, which you'd, we'd been running for 13 years, 12 years out of London. And it kind of run its course. And uh, at the end of it, I said to my wife that didn't want to start another business. wasn't in a real hurry. Like a lot of people build businesses, sell businesses, and then start another business. And I think sometimes that's not necessarily by choice. It's just kind of, you know, you've been addicted to this activity of running a business for so long, all the hustle, all that kind of stress and pressure, it's very addictive. And then it's nothing. But I wanted to take time out. My son was six at the time in 2012. So we took a lot of look at our options and we said, well, let's travel. Bought a one way ticket to New Zealand and which was, you know, the other side of the world to London started there and we sold all our stuff, right? Like we, you know, like if 
if you've got a family, you accumulate a lot of rubbish over time, as anybody does, right? Sold everything. We've got everything down into three suitcases. What was the hardest for you? Because they've been trying to minimalize, because I think minimalistic living is better. But I know yeah. that I was able to get CDs. I said, all right, I can get rid of all my CDs because I had hundreds, because I said I have Spotify, but my books. You see my books yeah. there. I've got hundreds. That was, I'm wondering, what was your pain point? What was the one that was... I'm with you on the books there, Roy. I, you know, I had to just give away a lot of books. And I, I love books and I don't like... I have had Kindles, right? I don't like digital because, you know, if you put it in a digital device, you've got 100 books inside the device. You're just like... It becomes like Twitter. You're just kind of scrolling through this thing, looking for stuff. But if you've got like a physical analog book in front of you, you take it away from the screen, you go and sit in the sun with a coffee read there's no distraction it's just me and the book or read it in bed whatever it may be you know i don't like looking at a screen at those times so that was hard uh what was hard i mean i think if you really get down once you start selling some things it's like layers you sell your car then you sell your clothes and your bikes and your you know it starts to become easier you start you look at the big mountain or stuff you've got and you think no way but you just chip away at it and then it gets all the way down. And then it's like, what else can I sell? <laughs> you know, and you try to sell everything. You get it right down. I mean, I wouldn't do it now, but back then decluttering was an amazing experience. I think what it teaches you, Roy, really what's important. What do you need? You really don't need a lot. You really can exist with very little. You know, we were three people living out of suitcases and we didn't own a home. We didn't own a car and we didn't really own a place we lived. If you know what I mean? Like we didn't have a, an existing community that we were part of. So we would turn up to these places and really start from zero. And it's very challenging, but at the same time, it's very liberating. You know, they say like comfort and freedom are two opposite sides of the same coin. You know, that's what you sacrifice. It's one paying off for the other. So you have to give up comfort to have freedom. To experiment. It's an exploration. It's a journey, an adventure. I recommend it to everybody one time in their life to declutter, see what happens. It's beautiful what happens. Things fall apart in a beautiful way. But it's worth trying. You declutter the brain as well by decluttering the stuff around you. You're decluttering your headspace. Yeah, the tail wags the dog in many spaces. I'll give you an example of that, a car, which I think is a fantastic example of something that's very useless in our lives. Because these days, depending on where you live, obviously, in Singapore, it's very easy to live without a car. You can grab Uber, whatever it is in your city somewhere. You can take a bike, a scooter, whatever it is. But here I saw, I'll give you an example, in the parking lot where i live there was a car and on sundays they take the cars out and they clean them they wash them down and so I'm out, i go out cycling so i want my bike my muddy bike down the trails on a sunday I cycle past and there's a woman cleaning the car on a sunday and she's a maid right so she's you know a live-in filipino maidens they live in people's houses as helps right so basically what they've done is they've given that person the job of cleaning the car on Sunday and she would have to have a, 
a room in the house. So they have to pay for that and pay for her. And now she's cleaning the car. And the interesting thing about the car is that family would pay 60 or 70% of their income every year for that car after tax, right? To afford it. And when you ask them, why do you need that car? And they will say, I need the car to drive to work. And then you say, well, why do you need to go to work? Ultimately, they need to go to work to pay for the car. And you look at all of that and you've got this maid on top of it who's cleaning the car who they have to pay and house and feed. You take all of that away. And then you're left with this very strange situation where actually you don't need a lot to live on. And to your point about decluttering mentally, that's where it comes in. You don't need to have that higher paid job. You don't need to have that bigger job title. You don't need to move into a crazy part of town just so you can commute. Then you can start living life on your own terms. Okay. When you go through a decluttering, let's say, I mean, I wouldn't have done it to your extreme, but I think every time you're buying something, then I always ask myself, is it a need or a want? Do I need this or do I want it? You know, and if it's a want, I don't get it. It's very tough though when you're marking your own homework, isn't it, Roy? So <laughs> you need somebody else to do that for you. Exactly. So with the with the different uh, clients, because I mean, I know you've got Air Asia. I think is it a you? I have a, a McKinsey, Vodafone, IBM. Like getting these clients, because I know it's kind of different. It's more in for the podcasting but still you still mm. have to kind of get them and it's the same for someone that's trying to speak and get land the big boys any advice you'd give people for kind of because they are you know impressive clients to have on your uh, you know company yeah I, I, the the real key here is, is thought leadership being that guy and that guy meaning you know you talk about that thing what are you that guy about so if i say you know roy and you, you say Roy, no, Roy who? Oh, you know, Roy, he does that thing. Oh, yeah, 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 I know Roy. And it may be that Roy that keeps popping up on my social media feeds or Roy that we know about town, whatever it is. But to own that X in somebody's head is a really powerful piece and a valuable piece of real estate in attention, right? For me, it was podcast and I did that by doing the graveyard shifts, I would go out and I would do the podcast and talk to people about podcasts when it wasn't popular. And I was just the podcast guy. I just kept talking about podcast and podcasting and social media, talking about podcasting and thought leadership and content marketing. I'll give you an example. Uh, I have an Australian friend who sent me a, a WhatsApp message and it was a joke. It was a typical Aussie that one of these kind of round robin messages during the pandemic had this video and it says, please, 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 whatever you do during the pandemic, don't start a podcast. And that was a typical thing that people did during the pandemic. People started podcasts and he forwarded it to me. First thing he did, forward it to me. I laughed at it, but I thought that was really good validation because when he thought of podcasts, he thought of me. And that's the impression that I want to make on people that when they think of that thing, I'm in that space because if I go and knock on their doors now, 95% chance that they're not interested or not ready, or it's not on their agenda, but there will be a time when it is. And when it does, I want to make sure that 
I'm there. I may not be there physically, but I'm there inside that little box, those few cells in their head. So the advice would be identify what your X is and then double down on it. And if you don't know, some people say what that X is, then often it's there in front of you. It may be like you're pushing on a lot of doors in life, which are not opening for you. But then there may be people that are reaching out to you and asking you things. So maybe they keep contacting you and say, hey, you know, like I'm, I need help with like decluttering, right? I know you keep talking about decluttering. I really need help. Or, you know, my mate's doing this podcast and he's looking for somebody talking about decluttering. So those are signs that you have to read. That's the awareness again, that you are being pulled in a direction. We can spend all of our life pushing that boulder up the hill, right? Like one of those kind of Greek myths, but you, you can push, you can let it roll. And the way to do that is to go with the flow. What, what are people pulling you for? Right. And once you identify that signals, cause we all have an aura, don't we? We all, I'm not getting spiritual. I'm not getting metaphysical, but I believe we all have an aura in the sense that we all speak in a certain way and have a certain avatar, which resonates with people. Like you may be the kind of guy that attracts certain people into your life. And you seem to have those kind of people around you and they see you in a certain way. And that's been like, since you were 15 all the way up to 50, it kind of resonates with everything. You can't change it. You can't, even if you try and be somebody else, they still bring you back to this avatar which you are and they see in you, right? And therefore you may not be conscious or aware of what that avatar is, but people may be telling you that through how they are pulling you in that direction. So be very conscious of the asks and read those signs and double down on them because that's the most powerful brand. It's very consistent. It's like I saw an ad the other day. I think it's one of those classic advertising case studies, Colgate lasagna, right? You know, Colgate at one point decided to make frozen lasagnas, right? It branched out into food. Everybody knows Colgate, but why the hell would you buy a lasagna for it? It's like, you know, great for dental hygiene, but terrible for food, right? Colgate has the avatar and it's the same, like, don't deny the avatar, go with it. You know, I have a British accent. That's something that I can use to my advantage or it would be used against me. So I look at that and think, well, a British accent, that may work in so I could either be a bad guy in a movie or I can use that to my advantage. And it plays on the avatar of being involved in voice, for example. So all those kind of things you have to look at, which are, you know, maybe stuff you're born with, maybe stuff that you've developed over time, maybe stuff that's to do with your background, for example, it's all very consistent. You know, your accent, where you're from, your backstory, build on that, double down on it. And then that becomes your DNA and your brand. Excellent. Love it. Love it. Listen, Graham, it's been uh, lovely speaking to you. So how can uh, people get in contact with you? Let's go to my website, all the W's, Graham, Spell the English way, G-R-A-H-A-M-D-Brown.com. Yeah, 
I'm going to make sure I put it in the podcast description, both on audio and video, so people can uh, find it. So thank you very much, Graham. Thank you, Roy. Yeah, it's great. It's good speaking to you. You too. That's all for the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com, on BitChute, or on YouTube. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, five-star rating. It all helps. Share with a friend. Until next week, take care. This podcast is sponsored by Kulabula, creators of websites, animation, and digital art. To get a 10% discount, go to kulabula.com and put in the discount code SPEAKING10.